available in more homes than the Pac-12 Network. We are the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online. And here he goes, Miles Jack! And I'm Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com. Liner, gonna try to sneak it ahead. Touchdown, SC! We are the Podcast of Champions. Welcome, everyone, back to the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And I'm Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com, the USC site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And together we make the Podcast of Champions, talking all things Pac-12 football. we got some big breaking news in the Pac-12, so we're going to talk about that. Carl Durrell, Dave's old buddy. Is now the My head coach. Friend. Yes, at Colorado. So, you know, who should we talk to about that, Dave? I think Adam Munster Tiger. Yeah. Can let's, we do that? Yeah, let's. I'm going to shoot him a text right now. We'll have him ready. He'll be ready in like five minutes or so. We'll get him on the show. Uh, but some other news around the conference. Uh, uh, can you believe spring football started today uh, at Temp- in Tempe, Arizona State? No, no, I don't believe today. It. Today, today is Monday. Late on Monday, we're recording this, but. Spring disagree. Yeah, disagree. Already started. So if you have any questions or comments for us, pac12podcast at gmail.com is the email address. Or if you'd rather call us or send us a text, you could do that too. 424-532-0678. You can tweet us at pac12podcast, the website, pac12podcast.com, where you can find all of our old episodes. You can also go to our Reddit page. It's reddit.com slash r slash podcast of champions. Get in there and uh, mix it up with some of the other podcast of champion listeners and you can subscribe on apple podcast or google podcast or iHeartRadio or stitcher megaphone anywhere you can get a podcast you can listen to us and you know rate us we, we like the, the positive ratings the the reviews are cool give us a five star just like your uber driver that that'd be great we do appreciate that yeah absolutely we like five star reviews we haven't gotten one in quite a while though everyone out there Jump just letting in there. you know yeah Maybe because we took a week off, but dude, we had Blair Angula, Angula on. We had Brandon Huffman on. We're going to have Adam Munster-Tiger on. Like the day, he asked the first question in the press conference today. We got him on the show, man. We're, we're, we're doing our best to uh, bring you guys the goods. I wouldn't say we're doing our best. Okay. <laughs> like, wouldn't that be a sad commentary on our best? If this this thing that these people are listening to, these this thing that these people are slopping up right now is our best, <laughs> that wouldn't be good. No. We're giving you our 5 out of 10 right now, everyone. I think that's fair. <laughs> now, now, in reality, it's probably our 8 out of 10. But we want them to think it's our 5 out of 10. We want them to think that we're capable of more than this because that's the only way they're going to keep coming back. There's more upside potential is what you're saying. Oh, yeah, 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 oh. yeah. Uh, well, we do have to talk about the uh, Carl Durrell stuff, but some other news, like I mentioned earlier, uh, spring football is starting, and it'll be over uh, by April 25th, and it's kind of staggered, depends on you know which program, but ASU is up first. Uh, they started today, February 24th. They will end on March 28th, and that'll be their spring scrimmage, and it will be live on Pac-12 Networks. Stanford starts tomorrow. Stanford starts on Tuesday. Uh, and then you kind of have a week before some of the other, you know, Utah, Arizona, Oregon State, UCLA, Cal, all kind of start around the same time. Oregon, 
And then there's a, you know, later on, you got USC. A little after that, you got Colorado, not till March 16th. That gives them some time for Carl Durrell in there. And then Washington State starts March 27th. And then Washington doesn't start until April 1st, but they cram it all in. They do April 1st to April 25th. So they get a lot of in there. But so kind of. They do it in a normal way, in the traditional way. Yeah. Like USC staggers theirs over six weeks. They take they do a week. They take a week off, and yeah, and their their spring games like in the fifth week, and they have one more week of practices. I don't really like that, but ASU man starting today and Stanford starting tomorrow. That uh, that just seems a little too early for me. Yeah, I think that's crazy. Um, but you know, we've talked about that in the past. There's reasons for it. Injury stuff makes sense. You know, if you get an injury in the in spring ball and it's April when it happens, well, that's not so good. But if you've started spring ball in February, maybe those guys are healed up by the start of the season. So there's some value to that, I guess. Um, and in certain areas, ASU in particular, being able to practice outside um, is a critical piece of the puzzle. Um, and you can definitely do that in February in Tempe. Uh, but once you get into mid to late April, things might get a little toasty. So all of that makes some sense, um, but it does feel crazy. But for our purposes, it does give us the chance to start cranking out spring practice content. So I wouldn't say necessarily next week, but the week after that, we can probably start doing mid-spring reviews, kick it off with ASU and Stanford since they're starting so early, and then kind of go from there. So for our purposes, it's good. Um, and, you know, for the teams, it sounds like it's fine. Yeah. Uh, we also... I don't know if we we want to talk about it too much, but the uh, NFL Combine is starting. So if you're looking on your Twitter account and you're seeing how big Justin Herbert's hands are or uh, how fast some dudes run, like right now it's just all kind of measurements and stuff. Um, but yeah, are you are you a big Combine guy, Dave, or not really? Uh, no, no, <laughs> not at all. Um, but I would say about Justin Herbert, as you know, longtime huge fan here. I really think he's going to go number one. As I've said, as I've been consistent in saying for such a long time now, um, he's going to be the number one pick in the draft. Really? All right. I have no, I have no friggin' idea. Come on. But I got to hedge my bets because it sounds like he's going to go pretty high. He is. Uh, Joe Burrow, his hands were measured at nine inches, which is the smallest um, of any quarterback, like first round quarterback since like two thousand eight, I believe. And then he had a great yeah. he had a great tweet about I, I forget it was, he was very self deprecating about you know there's no way the ball is definitely gonna slip out of his hands, um so, but with the small hands maybe he doesn't go number one and maybe it is just yeah Herbert. he has he has the hands that I always joked Sam Darnold had <laughs> right I think his his hand measurement was somewhat normal but but Joe Burrow's are small for some reason yeah doesn't seem to have affected him at the college level but. No, and I think uh, I saw Max Brown tweet something. He said, you know, hand size, you know, there's there's some validity to it, but if you can throw a tight spiral with whatever your hand size is, that's more important than how big your hands are. I mean, if you if you have really long fingers, you can wrap it all the way around the ball. Yeah, it's probably going to be harder to uh, strip it from you and stuff. But if you're good at throwing a tight spiral, whatever, whatever your hand size is, he, he was saying that's probably more important. That would make sense to me. Yeah, I, and I, the the thing with Herbert is people are definitely going to fall in love with him from like just a pure measurable standpoint, um, you know, and like if I was picking a quarterback between the two of them, I'd pick Burrow um, because he's performed at a much higher level on bigger, you know, stages. 
Um, but I can totally see people falling in love with Herbert. I mean, it's not like he has a bad track record. Um, and he's definitely got all those measurables. So it'll be interesting. I don't care uh, about the combine. I, I don't, I watch basically no NFL. I didn't even watch the Super Bowl this year, Ryan. What? You didn't watch the I did Super not, Bowl? I didn't watch the Super Bowl. And let me tell you, it was an incredible experience. I just had a nice Sunday. It was great. What? What did you do? Like, what happens when the Super Bowl is going? Well, on? I watched I watched the UCLA basketball game, which was somehow like not quite concurrent, but it was like on like three hours before the Super Bowl. Then I wrote about the basketball game, and then I just went and lived my life. It was great. Wow, I figured yeah. like stores would be closed. Like you can't really do anything. Everyone's watching that. It's not like it's you know Eastern the South. Like there's stuff open. All right. Yeah, it's crazy. Nice. Um, all right, so we had that news, and then uh, there was another note in here that the Big Ten and the ACC voiced unanimous support for transfers having immediate eligibility without sitting out a year. Seems like this is getting picking up some steam. Um, the eligibility would be contingent upon the athlete being a good academic standing, not in trouble, and receiving the blessing of his or her orienting school or originating school. Uh, Pac-12 has shown kind of mixed support. We talked about this a little bit before. Um, it, it seems like this is going to happen. It seems like it's fast track too, and anything that helps the athletes, I'm, I'm for. I'm for stuff like this. Yeah, and as usual, the Pac-12 is showing tremendous leadership and like being kind of lukewarm and not <laughs> taking a strong position on it. So that's great. Um, good for the Pac-12. No, I mean obviously, yeah, we're we're big proponents of the athletes having more power in this whole um, exchange. So getting. Um, the ability to have immediate eligibility when dudes like Mel Tucker are leaving a school after a single year after like tweeting the same day that they're going to stick around. Uh, yeah. The players should have more flexibility. Yeah. So this is, this is a great step in the right direction uh, for the big 10 and the ACC. And if two big leagues are, or two big conferences are doing it, then you can rest assured that everyone will be following suit pretty shortly. Yeah. Well, the big news, and I don't know if you're familiar with this gentleman, Carl Durrell, David, uh, uh, I've heard tell, I've heard, I've heard, I've heard a couple of things in my time. Yeah. This was one of those, and we're both going to try to be good and not completely crush this hire. Sort of like we did with the Herm Edwards stuff and, and Herm Edwards has been doing fine. You know, I mean, they're, they haven't got over that hump. They're still seven and five, but still it's a lot better than what we thought. So we don't know about this one. Um, but we needed to talk to an expert and find out, especially not just with Carl Durrell, because you probably know more about Carl Durrell than anybody, but at least anyone that we're talking to, but really about the search process too. Like, how did it end up here? I mean, just having to find a coach in February is one thing, but then you end up with, you know, giving some offers out and people turn you down. And then a guy really out of the blue, Carl Durrell, like, you know, there's had to be some interesting stuff going on in this search. Yeah, so I'm I'm very very excited to talk to our man Monster Tiger, um, who has his finger on the pulse of uh, everything going on here. And keep the faith, Buffs fans. We're gonna talk to your man right now. Yeah, we will. So we uh, pre-recorded that, so we're gonna play this for you right now, and then Dave and I will come back and uh, answer your questions, talk a little bit more about the uh, the Colorado hiring of Carl Durrell, and then get into the questions. <laughs> Well, David, we got to break this all down. Big news out of Colorado. Two coaching searches in the last 15 months. So we want to bring on Adam Munster-Tiger, 
Thanks for him. He's a published publisher of buffstampede.com. Thanks for joining us on such a short notice, Adam. I know it's been a crazy day for you, but thanks for coming on. No, you guys are the best. Uh, you know, I have a long commute into Boulder, and I really enjoy watch, listening to the podcast of Champions. And, and uh, it's been a busy day. I got like 18 more things left to do today, but <laughs> no, it's great to be on with you guys. Well, we won't keep you on forever, but we do need to get to the bottom of this. So if I talk to you, let's say 10 days ago, and I said to you, a former UCLA head coach is going to be hired by Colorado in 10 days. Where would Carl Durrell have been on that list in your like likelihood assumptions? Well, I would have gone in my computer and I would have started started to break the news that Jim Mora is going to be the next. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, he wanted this job, but uh, yeah, Rick George and Lance Carl, the athletic director, associate athletic director, they wanted no part of Jim Mora. Rick, Rick George is close to Rick Guerrero and, and just that was not going to happen. They, they didn't really feel like he would benefit in Colorado. It's just crazy how this is all transpired. Carl, Carl Durrell actually has his home in Lafayette, Colorado, and Rick George and Lance Carl didn't even know that until they interviewed him this past Wait, week. So what? I thought that yeah. was like a huge reason why. Like <laughs> they didn't even know no, that. They didn't know that. So his daughter played volleyball at CU last year. So Rick George had met Carl before, but yeah, it, it's kind of crazy how this all transpired. It was, I, I guess, at the end of the day, it was fate. But uh, we'll see how this all plays out. Yeah, that. So I was watching the press conference today, and I like what Carl was saying about coming home. I mean, he was. For people, to, if you didn't watch it, he was he's he'd working for the uh, Miami Dolphins. He just got a promotion to I think assistant head coach. They were getting a couple days off before the NFL Combine, so he was just going to fly back to Colorado and had you know hang out with his family, and gets a call from you know and gets a call for I guess through his agent or whatever like Hey, are you interested in this job? He's like Okay, well I'm going to be out there already. When can we talk? And he was going to have I think Rick George come over to his house. Yeah, I thought that was like planned, but the fact that they didn't even know that just just sounds crazy to me. Yeah, you know, he's a guy that has been kind of out of the college game long enough to where that's not somebody that you would think of initially, right? Yeah. He's had success in the NFL, and I don't know. David is going to fill us in on the whole Carl Durrell experience at UCLA, (laughs) but I've covered one bowl game in the last 12 years and that's hard to do in college football. <laughs> and Carl Durrell took at least took UCLA to five bowl games in five years. So I'm interested to hear kind of the Bruins side of things in terms of what they think about him today. I thought at the press conference that he had a genuine quality to him and seems like kind of a father figure type that I don't know what he was like when he was at UCLA, but he's been, you know, in different stops since then has been, again, assistant head coach promoted here recently to Miami Dolphins. They credit him for some inspirational speech last year to really rev up the team. It's happened so fast. It's, it, I feel like I'm kind of chasing, trying to catch up with Carl Drill in, info. I was not on the beat in 2000. Uh, I started the beat in 2003, way, be, uh, you know, after Carl Durrell actually was the assistant coach here for a couple of stints. So I'm kind of catching up with all this stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, 
so I, I don't want to gaslight any Colorado fans out there and like completely blow smoke up your butt. I don't think it's a great hire, but like he was last the head coach 13 years ago um, and he was really young then. I mean, he got the UCLA job as the head coach when he was 100% not ready. Not at all. He had just been the wide receiver. Well, I mean, he was a wide receivers coach at the Broncos. He'd been an OC, but it was OC in name only, more or less, for Rick Neuheisel at um, Colorado and Washington. So there was an element where he really hadn't had a whole lot of reps. And so when he took over the UCLA job, there was a lot of stuff that first year where a bunch of fans were like, what did we just do? This guy is saying things that are like clear that he just has no idea what's going on. And some of it was people misreading him. He was trying to poke fun at himself. But there was just an element of learning on the job for him. Um, I was a student at UCLA um, for every single one of his seasons. Um, So I have a, oh, a slightly drunken perspective of, sure, of a lot of the uh, UCLA years. Um, But what I would say is this. So the teams he inherited were much more talented than the teams he left there. Um, I think if you're talking about him as a recruiter, one of the knocks was definitely that he did not aggressively compete with Pete Carroll in recruiting. And yeah, that's a bit of a tough task. But UCLA did concede a lot of recruiting battles, especially early on. Um, And so when you look at his resume and you look at him as a recruiter, understand the teams did get less talented as time went on. But I think in another note is I think it's pretty clear he also improved as a coach from year one to year five. That 2003 and that 2004 team were probably the two most talented teams he had, um, and they underperformed. Uh, That fifth-year team in 2007, not a ton of talent, and it probably overperformed when you actually look back at it and look at the context of who was on the team um, and kind of the, the limitations he had at quarterback for sure. So I don't know. When you look at the whole the whole scope of the thing, he wasn't good at UCLA. I, I don't want to say he was, um, but if you're going to take a stab at a at a former UCLA head coach, probably would have picked Mora. I mean, he's got some baggage, but I probably would pick Mora. But I definitely would pick Durrell over Neuheisel, and I mean, at this point, probably over Chip Kelly. Um, so it's it's worth a shot, um, and it's been 13 years. I mean. Looking at that Vanderbilt stint as an OC, I think the main, most important thing for Durrell, he can't run his offense. He cannot run that West Coast offense again. If he makes any noise about running that West Coast offense, um, everyone needs to start screaming immediately um, and get, you need an innovative scheme. If that's uh, Cheverini, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. Um, If that's getting him just to stay and, and do whatever he's doing, or if it's hiring somebody else outside, but he can't run that West Coast offense. If he can avoid doing that, I think by now at 56 years old, he might have the makeup to be a good head coach who's going to provide that kind of moral leadership and be that kind of steadying force, but he needs to not run his offense. He needs to not be wedded to that West Coast offense because that was really, in a lot of ways, his downfall at UCLA. Yeah, I would love to respond to some of that stuff. It's interesting. My actual question at Carl Durrell today was what what did you learn during that stint as UCLA's head coach and he was pretty honest he said I learned a lot and he kind of was admitting that he did not connect well with players early on and that's something that he learned to do and continue to learn on from there 
it's interesting with Mel Tucker leaving in the middle of the night, seemingly that he's his, his new nickname among Colorado fans is Midnight Mel. He just kind of oh. took the midnight train up to <laughs> up to East Lansing. Um, was they wanted a guy that is going to be here long term? Because again, you alluded to it earlier, Ryan, that you know th- this is the second co- coaching search I've covered in the last fifteen months. Is they want a guy that's committed? He has a home here. Will that result in success long term? I don't know. I mean, this is the fifth coaching search I've covered, and every coach seemingly wins that intro press conference, right? And does that result in wins at Colorado? It hasn't recently. I liked his genuine quality. Uh, he seems to be what this Colorado program needs right now. But again, I'm jaded. Like, this has been a long time of. of one season, 2016, Mel, Mike McIntyre had a good good run there for one year. But even the players on that team tell me it had nothing to do with him. It was senior <laughs> leadership, and they, they, they went through a lot of close losses, came together as a group, and they self-policed that team. They're the reason that they won those games. And, you know, frankly, from what I've seen and observed, that was true. Um, so... I don't know. It's it's a tough deal to try to predict the future future with Carl Durrell. He seems like he might be what they need, but I don't know. It's one of those deals with Colorado. It's it's such a beaten program at this point. And gosh, I mean, this has been a tough stretch for me, guys. I mean, I, yeah. I really you got to stay unbiased and try to do your job. But I want to cover some bowl games, and, and that's totally <laughs> honest with you guys. No, that makes sense. It, you know, there, I think there's some good points there. This is the same sort of thing. I don't want to crush this hire like we did with Herm Edwards, and then we kind of backed off and said, you know what? Herm's yeah. doing a lot better than we thought. Yeah. I feel like coaches can learn. This was a long time ago, what he did at UCLA. You're not basing it on that. I, I, got, I had a lot of USC fans that were all over Ed Orgeron and all that stuff, and he definitely learned from his stint when he was at Old Miss, and that was a disaster. He did a lot of things wrong, and he admitted that. And then – he did some good things when he was, you know, quick term at USC. And then obviously he's learned a lot from that, had a lot of resources in LSU and was able to win a national championship. I'm not saying that's what Carl Durrell is going to do, but you do have to like take into account that they've learned things like they, Carl Durrell was like Dave said, was too young. He shouldn't have been named the head coach to begin with, but you did get invaluable experience. And you, and what, as a Colorado fan, you just kind of have to hope he learned the right things. Now I know stuff that Edward Geron did really well. Like, he was an amazing recruiter. And then that's one thing that he brings to the table. He had to learn other stuff. I'm not sure all of Carl Durrell's like, you know, ex- like what he does as, you know, excellent. You know, I, I don't know what he excels at, but obviously he's got to bring that to the table and then kind of get better at the stuff that he didn't. And I, I like what he said in the press conference props to you, by the way, you had the first question in there, um, you know, talking about recruiting and, you know, he knew the the right bases where he could recruit, but he also has got connections to like Florida. He can do some spot recruiting there. So I, you want to try to be optimistic about it. It does seem like a strange hire, but you have to hope if you're a Colorado fan that he did learn from everything that he did at UCLA that long ago, and then you know learn more from the the NFL and then what what he can, the plan he'll bring to the table now. You just got to hope it's going to be better than the plan he had at UCLA because. You know, he was young. He didn't really understand it as well as, as he should now. And, yeah, here's the other things. Just kind of taking you guys down a miserable memory <laughs> lane for me on this beat is 
Gary Barnett was a good coach. And in his last year as a head coach, they went to the Big 12 championship game. But there was a, a recruiting scandal going on, and recruiting was suffering. When Dan Hawkins took over, he said this place was burnt to the ground in his first year. And Dan Hawkins actually had a pretty decent team that he inherited for, from Gary Barnett, so he was dead wrong. And he was a fraud. He couldn't build on that. He goes four years in. It's clear Dan Hawkins is not the guy. Everybody told me from moment one when Dan Hawkins was hired out there in Boise that y'all hired the wrong coach from, from here, that Chris Peterson was the brains behind this whole success. And Mike Bone, who, Brian, you're getting familiar with, a uh, good guy, and he was told by CU's president, you're not going to fire Dan Hawkins right now because we're still buying out Gary Barnett's contract and I'm going to have to go in, in front of state legislator, legislature and, and lobby for funding. We can't have two coaches that we're buying out on, on the deal there. So Dan Hawkins was given a fifth year and recruiting just died. Like you could not if anybody had a pulse, you could go play for Colorado at that point was kind of the, the deal. And so when John Embry took over, probably not the right hire. It was kind of influenced on Mike Bone. All the former buffs were telling him, you got to get somebody that knows this place. No one was going to take the job at that time and have success. You could have brought Nick Saban in and he was going to lose when he came in. That's how the program was at that point. And so after two years, John Embry gets fired. They bring in Mike McIntyre, and I give him a lot of credit. You know, he could not take the program to that next level, but he was a program builder. He built some stability within it, built a good foundation, and he was fired, obviously, and Mel Tucker comes in, and he did a great job. That's why it stings so much for Colorado fans is because Mel Tucker said and did all the right things while he was here. And it looked like the program was on the right trajectory. You win two of your last three games. You get the you know, best recruiting class on paper that Colorado's had since joining the, joining the conference in, in 2011. So that hurts. And then you have Rick George in a really bad position, trying to hire a coach in February. So it's just been this collection of events that has just really been – it almost seems like Colorado's program has been jinxed. And that's why I say I, th I think Carl, Carl Durrell, and, and I don't know this, I can't predict the future, but he had the right temperament today and the right vision. But the one thing that does concern me, to your point, David, is that he didn't mention recruiting really that much today. And, and that's the one thing that he's really going to have to get it hammered into his head. He's going to have to round out a staff that can recruit. And obviously it's not easy. Again, I've covered one bowl game in 12 years, and so... <laughs> That's the biggest concern, but he seems like the right fit for what they need right now. But again, it, it, it's a tough haul. I will say that Carl Durrell takes over a team that is more talented than Mike McIntyre did, than John Embry did. Not a, a, as talented as Dan Hawkins did, even though he said it was burned to the ground before he got there. He was building up excuses from day one. But, you know, they've got some talent. they got to find a quarterback, but they've got talent across the board. You know, this was a team that went 5-7 and seven last year, was not competitive against UCLA, not competitive against some teams. Ryan, you were there. 
chat with me in the in, in the press box there at Folsom Field. That, that that you saw kind of what they're on the verge of if they have the right coach and right recruiters to kind of fill in those gaps. Yeah, I mean, it, that's going to be the key thing is is assistant hires um, generally and who he gets as his main recruiters. Um, I, it's another thing where I don't know, but taking 13 years, well, not 13 full years, but taking 12 of the last 13 years off from college coaching, it's going to be a while before he even gets his college reps back. You know, the, the yeah. just going out and hitting the recruiting trail and doing that whole deal. Um, so getting some really experienced recruiters in who can, um, you know, get some guys, um, I, that's going to be critical. I, I do go back to the offense, though, too. I mean, it's going to be it's going to be maddening if if he goes out there and runs his West Coast offense again. I'm thinking now at 56, having been through all the NFL stuff, being through a failed stint at Vanderbilt, as well as all the issues he had, especially early on at UCLA, he will have learned that. Um, and I would say his assistant hires did get better towards the end. I mean, he hired a really good DC his last couple years, Dwayne Walker at UCLA who really kind of infused the defense with some real attitude and toughness. And that was, you know, those were less talented UCLA teams um, and they played a lot better. I mean, that was the 2006 UCLA team knocked off um, one of Pete Carroll's better USC teams um, in the uh, 13 to nine game. And that was completely led by the defense. So there's, I, I would be, you know, I, I, what, what, what I mean, what can Colorado fans do? I'd be optimistic. Um, I mean, I think there's there's room to think that this isn't going to be horrible. Um, I think there's room to believe that this is going to work out um, because, look, time's the best teacher. Um, and Darrell's had now a lot of years to learn from that experience. And even during the process, I think he was cognizant of some of this stuff. I remember interviewing him in his last year and he was talking about all the stuff he had learned. And part of it was, you know, he was talking to even the Daily Bruin writer, kind of trying to campaign to keep his job. But he did seem honest and introspective about some of the stuff that was even happening then. So I have to think, you know, 13 years later, yeah, maybe he has, a, maybe he has another run in him. And now he'll probably be a little bit more humbled by the experience um, and be more willing to think outside of his, um, you know, the roots of his offensive box. Because, um, you know, he was a Denver Broncos wide receivers coach. He learned a lot of stuff from like Shanahan where it was, you know, that kind of that kind of West Coast offense that really has never translated well unless you've got an overabundance of talent at the college level. Um, some hopefully he's learned a little bit from that. Hopefully he's been watching the way the college game has evolved in the last, you know, ten years really, um, and he's ready to do something interesting from it all. Yeah, what's funny is you guys handle fans on message boards every day, and when Carl Durrell's name came out as the guy that was going to get the job because he was not a rumored candidate. He actually had not even interviewed for the job until last Thursday night. So we know that Eric Bieniemy was offered the job. We know that Steve, Steve Sarkeesian was offered the job. And so he was a later candidate. So he was not part of our hot boards and, you know, all the rumors that go on with the coaching search. And so there are a couple of fans that said, I'm out right now as Colorado fans. And my initial reaction was like, Dude, you've been through so much more than this right now. Like, if that's the straw that broke the camel's back, then that's sad because Colorado has been deeper depths. I, I don't know if Carl Durrell will have Colorado competing for championships, but the sense I get is he's at least going to bring this 
group together and have them at least, you know, competing a little bit. Yeah, and I think that's right. Yeah, and I mean, if if I mean the John Embry era, that should have been the breaking point for anybody. Right. Come on. Right. When he was at the end, what was he like in his last press conference? Was he talking about like we don't even have enough desks or something? Like we don't even have pencils for meetings or whatever? Like that should have been the breaking point. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're uh, you're in it now, Colorado fans. You're stuck <laughs> with this, and yeah. you're just gonna have to see it through to its finish. Adam, I want to talk about the coaching search a little bit. You mentioned, uh, you know, Eric Bieniemy and Steve Sarkeesian. I talked to a source, you know, that's pretty close to Sark, and he didn't really understand why he wouldn't have taken the job if he's waiting for something better. I don't know if Steve Sarkeesian has a lot of baggage if he would get something better than Colorado. So that seems like a bit of a mistake. Um, but you know, that it was the way this went down and how quickly it happened when it became Carl Durrell, like you said, like they flew him out there, you know, well, he was flying out there, they offered him the job, and it was like boom, it was like over uh instantly. Why do you think they would go there as opposed to maybe having like a David Chivarini and who's already, you know, former Colorado player also already on the staff was the interim head coach. When you strike out in the first few, it seemed like he would have been a, a pretty good candidate there. And then they kind of go outside and get Carl Durrell. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I'll start with Eric Bieniemy. He is an NFL guy and he was the OC under John Embry here and I like John a lot. You know, we, you get those relationships with coaches when they're around, and, and it's nothing against him personal. But they try to run it like a professional franchise. They run a bunch of players off, which is not good. You can't have over 50% attrition on, on your recruiting classes. That does not work for the stability of your program. You could hear him just screaming at players, and then you go in there and request Eric Bannamy, and you come over and say, Hi, Adam, you know, in a really nice voice but like he you know he was just demeaning players for a long time i and i know he's grown under andy reed and maybe it would have worked out in boulder i don't know i think the apprehension from him was real you know he had been in boulder not that long ago i mean it's i guess it's been nine years now but he's an nfl guy and he could be really successful as a head coach there and i hope he is he he's a good guy and just not, I don't know. I don't think he's suited for, for college football. He's had his, he, he had success as a recruiter in college earlier, but as a head man, I think it needs to be in the NFL. And again, I think he might be successful there. Sark, he was close to finalizing a deal with Colorado. They thought they had him in the bag. Nick Saban had a heart to heart with him. They threw a bunch of money at him. And for Colorado, I think they might have dodged a bullet there. Not that I don't think Sark would have been successful at Colorado, but that if he if he's easily influenced enough by one talk with Nick Saban, who I mean he's a legend in college football, but you you don't want to go through this again in fourteen months, fifteen months. You you've you've just done this, and so you want a coach that's committed there long term, and so. It didn't work out. I, th I think it would have been fun to cover a Sark coach team there, you know, considering that apparently he's clean now and all that stuff. But I think he would have been maybe had a little bit more cachet. Not maybe he would have had more cachet, been a better recruiter potentially. Uh, but that just didn't work out. And yeah, then you, you've interviewed other guys, Brett Bielema, Troy Calhoun. Troy Calhoun would have been a nightmare. He's won a lot of games at Air Force, but even when he was asked about it by an Air Force 
you know, somebody down in the Colorado Springs about his interest in, in the Colorado job. He went crazy on the defensive and just gave some horrible quotes. Uh, he would have been miserable. He would not have reached out to connected well with boosters and media and, and everybody. So that would have been a bad fit, I, I feel like. And so Carl Durrell, we'll see. You know, he said all the right things today. And, and he was not the first choice, not the second choice. I've covered a lot of press conferences again, like I said before, and everybody's excited. They think the future's bright, and that doesn't necessarily translate to wins in the future. So, it, it, you know, we all want to sit here on a podcast and have the answers, but you don't know how it's going to play out. And Carl Durrell at least seems like the demeanor they need for this program right now. What about shit? Like, what about David Chivarin? Like, I hope I pronounced that right. Like, Darren, there was Darren, definitely Darren, Darren, yeah. oh, Darren, I'm sorry, Darren, my bad. Darren Chevarini wanted the job really bad, and he was named interim head coach. The first mistake he made was retweeting every support that he had and being a little bit too public about it. You know, in, even in the, the coaches' meetings with the, the guys that were there when he was interim of, you need to support me now or you're not going to be here. You know, just there were th- some things that weren't good from, from how he projected himself. And Carl Durrell was named head coach today. The coaches knew he'd be there at 8.30 this morning. Darren, Chever- Darren Cheverini was not there. Oh. And I know that he's going to get offered a job. But Carl Durrell is not going to beg him to stay, and, and it would be a big loss, I, I feel like. He's been the top recruiter at CU the last four years, 46 players that have signed with Colorado. He has been the primary or secondary recruiter for, so that's a big, huge number. And especially for Colorado coming off their best recruiting class, you need to maintain that momentum you know, going forward, but you got to have people that are that are bought in, right? You can't just beg somebody to stay and have them talking behind your back when you're not around. So it's a kind of a delicate, complicated situation. Tomorrow he could be all in and, and I would have a different answer for you right now. It seems like it's, it's kind of a influx type situation and Colorado fans should hope that Darren Chevrolet is there. But if you're not going to, be a team player here then then you you can't be on the staff right i mean th- that's kind of no, yeah this the situation going forward is you've got a kind of a fractured situation with mel tucker leaving in the middle of the night you got to kind of hold this ship together yeah you gotta have stability and i guess that last question for me because i know you've got a lot on your plate for the rest of the night but um given that kind of you know you got to emphasize stability how What's the mood? What's the temperature of the team right now with Mel Tucker leaving? How much of the next few months is going to be re-recruiting a lot of these guys for Darrell and his new staff and making sure they're all bought in? Um, Is there any kind of worry about not naming names or anything, but is there any kind of imminent worries about transfers or anything like that out of the program? Well, the good thing is when you're 18 to 22 years old, your relationships with your teammates are more than even the head coach, right? For sure. And so they rallied. It's funny, when Rick George had his press conference the day Mel Tucker left, he said, you know, it was a somber 
meeting with the players. And then I heard afterwards from a lot of people, it wasn't somber. It was pissed off. It was angry. They kind of let that emotion go you know, that first day. And there were some underclassmen that didn't work out the rest of that week. Workouts were kind of voluntary at the end of that week. They came back the next Monday, last Monday, and everything I heard was there was more leadership shown from the leaders in the program at that point than they had seen since that 2016 season. You got guys like Nate Landman that are really leading the charge. There, there's a long list of guys. And so that, that part of it was encouraging for Colorado fans to hear. Carl Durrell kind of had a, you know, unifying message for them for them and it's, it's going to de- depend on how they ran out this this staff and, and how those players kind of relate to them but it, it was more about the players kind of unifying than it was about anything else and so that part of it i i don't really think there's going to be a whole lot of transfers the one benefit of a carl Durrell hire i think is that he's not a def- divisive type guy he's not going to get in there and and scream at guys and so they're they're close to that 85 scholarship number and not a team returning that's going to compete for the pac-12 championship next year but again this is more talent in the program and that's credit to mel tucker and mike mcintyre before him that 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 Durrell doesn't take over a team that's just completely devoid of talent and, you know, Colorado struggled recently, but they've gone five and seven in the last three years. Not a great mark by by any stretch, but they've competed. Some weeks they they beat teams that are not supposed to, and then other weeks they just get blown out. But it's not a dire straits as long as they can get a staff around these guys that, that can kind of keep the ship together. But, again, I don't think there's going to be a lot of transfers. The, the big question mark We'll talk about this, I'm sure, as we go deeper into things. But his question is at quarterback, and Steve Montez was super in, inconsistent. They do have Tyler Lytle, a junior quarterback, that has shown great leadership. And Brandon Lewis, the the true freshman they brought in, uh, has been turning heads in the weight room. So the, as long as a quarterback can emerge for this program, we all know how important you know quarterback plays in college football this should be a, a competitive team this year. And so I don't expect like a mass exodus, especially with Carl Durrell being who he is. Adam Munster Tiger does a great job covering the Colorado Buffaloes. Buffstampede.com is the website, part of the CBSI 24 seven sports family. He's been doing it since 2003. You can follow him on Twitter at Adam CM seven, seven, seven. Adam, thanks for coming on on a short notice. Thanks so much guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Adam. Well, that was an interesting uh, talk, Dave. I, I do you feel bad for Colorado fans? I feel bad for Adam. He needs. I to, feel bad for Adam. He needs to cover I, I a cover game. He seems so sad, and not like I, not for like Carl, like that whole thing, but more just like the exhaustion of doing this for now, uh, like fifteen years. Um, not a good time for Colorado the last like decade and a half. I really. You, you know, we've joked in the past about being like Colorado fans on here, like mainly when UCLA has been like absolutely absolute crap. I've just convinced myself that I'm a Colorado fan, um, but I really want him to do well. Like I really want I, like I liked Carl just fine um, when he was at UCLA, like as a person. 
Um, and he was always really good with the student newspaper, which is what I was part of at that time. Um, there's a lot of good qualities about the guy. So I hope he does well. Like, I really do. Um, I don't think he was ready for the UCLA job um, by any stretch of the imagination, but maybe now he is. I don't know. Um, it's, I think you couldn't really know at this point. So you got to hold out hope, and I, I, I really hope he does do well. Yeah, you got to hope so. And I, I was a little taken aback because I watched the press conference and, um, you know, they had the chancellor on it and then they had Rick George come on and talk about it and the search and how quickly it happened that he flew out there. And I thought that he would be like this under the radar candidate because of, okay, he was a head coach in the Pac-12 before. He's a lot of, you know, coaching under his belt from the NFL but I thought really the draw would be like he's already has his home there. And he was someone that this was his dream job. Like he talked about it was great that he just got this promotion with the Dolphins, but you couldn't turn down the Colorado job. He said if there was another, you know, head coaching job in college, he probably would have to think about it. But this was his job. So I thought there was more going into this where, hey, you're going to hire someone that maybe isn't like the greatest candidate in the world, but they're not leaving. And I, you, you know, usually you try to hire different than what you just did. You went out and found the guy that you took a chance on and looked like, wow, we made a good hire. And then someone sucked him up away, even though he was five and seven. This was someone that I don't think anyone's going to steal away. Like he's happy at Colorado. He already has a home there. I it would be really tough for someone to take Carl Durrell away if, if he does have a lot of success unless it has like this unprecedented success, but they didn't even know that he had a home there. Like that's what was weird to me. Yeah. That's, that's, that's kind of crazy to me, but I could see them still buying into the stability thing just from the kind of guy that Carl is from talking to him and all that kind of stuff. Um, he, he is, I, I, he never would have left UCLA if they'd never fired him. Like even if he had a bunch of success, he never would have left UCLA I don't think he'll leave Colorado if he has a bunch of success there. They are getting a stable guy. He's yeah. a, this is this is stability. You're getting somebody who's going to be stoic on the sideline. He's not going to get too high or too low. There's not going to be any kind of weird stuff going on in the locker room. It's going to be a very stable program. I just hope it's good, too. Um, it wasn't very good at UCLA. Yeah. Um, the record says he was over 500, and that's true. Um, but he was working with some pretty damn talented UCLA teams at the beginning of that. Um, and a very, one might say lucky 2005 team that went 10 and two. If you remember that team, they were coming back from 17 or 21 point deficits in like, I don't know, <laughs> six of those 10 wins, something like that. <laughs> um, so I, I really hope he does do well. He is going to provide that stability. Um, and it's just a matter, I, like I said to Adam, that offense was dreadful at UCLA. The just, and not, um, there were moments where it looked fine because they had Mercedes Lewis out there. Who's I think still playing in the NFL. Um, Maurice drew. Um, they had some real talent in those early years that made it look, especially in 2005, look gangbusters at times. Um, and uh, but that offensive scheme itself was was not not a pretty thing. No. So even I, if I'm you hoping... had a good offensive scheme 13 years ago, you needed it to be updated. So that's and he said it was going to be a fun brand of football. He talked about the defense a lot during the press conference. Um, he told lots of stories. I mean, it was a pretty long press conference. I'm not saying he was the most exciting person to listen to. 
but I, I don't know. You're a Colorado fan. You need something. You need to, to be excited. And uh, I think it's uh, – uh, we, we just have to wait and see, Dave. I don't know. I mean, we're, it, we're hoping it, it, it works. Liter- it literally could be worse because you could have hired Rick Neuheisel. Like, that could have happened, and it didn't. What's you avoided the worst possible failed UCLA coach. But he are, didn't he already coach at Colorado? It could have still happened. Yeah. It could have still happened. And if that had happened, I would be killing it right now. Carl Durrell, I'll buy there's a chance. And I hope there's a chance because, you know, he's a, he's a decent dude. So hopefully it works out for him. I think uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I believe that makes uh, six uh you know, uh, so as far as diversity hires in the conference, six minority head coaches uh, in the conference, uh, which is pretty cool. I think there's only eight in Power Five total outside of the Pac-12, and one of them is Mel Tucker, who just went to Michigan State <laughs> that they took from the Pac-12. Um, I believe those numbers are right, but that's it's still pretty good. And uh, yeah, that's probably what like six of the eight total in the entire FBS. I, no, I think there's eight outside of the Pac-12 in the FBF. In, um, oh, I was I was joking because I wasn't like really listening to the eight number. But are you telling me there's only fourteen total? I believe so. Not in FBS in uh, Power Five. I I think that's the oh, number. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's uh, cool. In a in a um, yeah, that's that's super cool in a minority dominated sport. Um, <laughs> but, very cool. Very normal. Can't see any problem there, but yeah, good on the Pac-12. Um, generally speaking, um, yeah, and I, that's one of many reasons I hope it works out for Carl. Yeah, um, it would be good to have a success story, especially after there was a lot of denigration of his hire at UCLA for the not correct reason, which is that wow, he's just completely not ready. There was some denigration of it as like, oh, they're just doing this as a PC hire or whatever. Um, so. Hopefully, I really do hope it works out for him. Yeah, we do too. I was just taken aback when I was like, really? Okay. Uh, which a lot of people were. Uh, I guess we could jump into the questions. We got one from Jeremy in Utah. He's It's uh, titled UCLA Recruiting Idea. He says, fellas, last week we learned that UCLA has finally found the ability to win recruiting battles in New Hampshire. Uh, we all know UCLA has recruiting limitations based on some of the following factors. Okay, so these are the limitations for UCLA recruiting, according to Jeremy. Poor geographic location and unappealing campus. Access to high-quality players in region. Lack of financial support and wealthy donors. Gloves. That's a huge one. No, that's not a limitation. The lack of gloves is a limitation. Lack of gloves, yeah. Uh, Yeah, No winning tradition. That's pretty fair, actually. Uh, Weather. (laughs) <laughs> no winning tradition is not fair. That's not fair. In the context of USC, maybe fair. No, UCLA is like a top two or three program in the Pac-12 forever. It's the last like 20 years that have been absolutely dreadful. Yeah. But it's the, the fact that it could be dreadful for 20 years and UCLA is still probably historically like two or three. God, oh, it's, I, I can't. So you're disagreeing with Jeremy. Okay. Um, weather. Yeah, that's terrible for UCLA. Uh, a coaching staff not known for innovation, uh, lack of clarity on which days of the month are best for scholarship offers. That's a big one. And only being able to attract linebackers. UCLA signed 10 linebackers in this class. Um, At least. Yeah. With that in mind, could UCLA have found the path to recruiting success in the forgotten States 
in the Northeast. Unfortunately, it doesn't look like there are any ranked players in New Hampshire, Maine, or Vermont in 2021. But there is one three-star player in Rhode Island, defensive end Jason Onye. I don't know. Uh, he has an Arizona offer. I'd go with Onye. Onye. We'll go Onye. He has an Arizona offer, so clearly there are teams that are even more desperate than UCLA. I sure hope Chip and staff can figure it out. If not, I'm sure UCLA is one coaching change from reaching its inevitable dominance. Jeremy in Utah. Thanks, Jeremy. I appreciate that. D- Dave feels really happy now. Yeah, no, I feel great. I really appreciate it. So if you couldn't get the sarcasm from his email, he's saying UCLA has a lot of advantages when it comes to recruiting. They shouldn't stink so bad. That's true. That's true. Hmm. Yeah. (laughs) They really shouldn't. They really shouldn't. It's almost like you shouldn't take the UCLA job and then immediately concede the one huge advantage that you have in taking the UCLA job. Like the one reason you perhaps a former star college coach would have wanted the job in the first place. Maybe you don't concede that one major advantage, which is, oh yeah, it's really friggin' easy to recruit there. (laughs) Maybe don't let that be the thing where you're going to out efficient everyone else. Maybe let that be the one thing that you base everything else on. And then, oh wow, I can actually get maybe a more high quality recruit on a consistent level than I was ever able to get at Oregon. Damn, maybe I should use that. Just do the same entire thing I did at Oregon. You know, just talking hypothetically here about just an, and using Oregon as a stand in here and do that exact same thing, but just with better overall recruiting. No, that seems like a we bad don't idea. Do that. Seems like a bad. Okay. Idea. No. Yeah. I'm just, I'm thinking too hard about this whole thing. No, Dumb, let's, let's, dumber, <laughs> let's instead try to recruit like Minnesota in Los Angeles. Yeah. <laughs> See how that works. I really hope they get that Rhode Island kid because that would be great. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be lovely? Mm, yeah. All right. Uh, you ready for John? Yeah. This is John and Brea. Pack 12 ideas. Dear Ryan and Dave, in last week's podcast, when asked if there is anything Larry Scott can do to help the Pac-12 reverse the trend of a widening revenue revenue gap, the response was the ship has already sailed on what Larry Scott can do and that they would need to get really creative and they've already tried some stuff. I don't like the idea of letting Champagne Larry off the hook for the last three years of his contract. He needs to do something, anything. Which of the following ideas would be better than Larry Scott doing nothing? One, move Stanford and Cal into the South, Colorado and Utah into the North, and go to an eight-game conference schedule for football. Two, create an additional Pac-12 channel, Pac-12W, that would feature women's sports highlighted by women's gymnastics along with women's soccer, softball, basketball, and volleyball, and sell that channel to DirecTV and others for the next three years. Three, add eight Mountain West schools in the Pac-12 and introduce a relegation model within the new 20-team conference with two divisions of 10 teams, one Pac-20 Premier and the other Pac-20 We Aren't Very Premier. Four, sell the conference to Amazon. <laughs> Five, donate the conference. <laughs> Five, donate the conference to Cars for Kids. Love the podcast, especially the two-hour ones. John in Brea. Thank we you, John. Do. We this all is know great Champagne email. Larry likes to roll large, right? Like, oh, that's um, so good. Um, what's 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 your favorite of these five? Okay, uh, I think Cars for Kids is number one. Obviously, yeah. Uh, I don't know if you would get Amazon would uh, Amazon. They're pretty shrewd business people. I don't think they would buy it. Um, and if they did, 
It might become part of Whole Foods or something. I don't know. Like, I'm not sure that that would do a lot of good. Um, I do like number one, and I know some of the people don't like that, but put Stanford and Cal in the south, Colorado, Utah in the north, go eight-game conference for football. I think that's a really good one. Um, relegations. I mean, I, I'm not a soccer guy. You're not a soccer guy. I love relegation. So add eight Mountain West schools and do relegation and, and watch teams go up and down. And like a power like a UCLA or USC end up going down at some point would be, I mean, just awesome. So I think that's great. And I don't think that you could sell a Pac-12 women's. I don't think they need more networks. I need to, I'd rather see them consolidate the networks that they have as opposed to adding new ones. Yeah, agreed. Um, so, all right, donate comments to Cars for Kids. Obviously, it's what they should do tomorrow. Um, <laughs> selling comments to Amazon would actually be interesting. Now, if I can just hold my nose and like, not think about like Amazon just slowly taking over the entire world. Um, it would be kind of cool to just be able to like watch live stream sports on prime. And I have to imagine at some point, Amazon is going to want to get into live programming yeah, um, of some sort. So I wouldn't completely poo poo that one um, as a potential option down the road. And if they're just trying to break in doing it by overpaying for a floundering, you know, brand, yeah, it might make sense. Um, adding the Mountain West schools would be probably of these ideas the one that I think is like the most like on the ground kind of fun and interesting. Um, like I'd have a lot of fun with that. Oh I yeah, mean, it'd be it'd be super cool. Like UCLA just continues the Chip Kelly era, and it's now competing against like UNLV um, for like the bottom rung division. That'd be fun. That not fun. Fun's fun's the wrong word. Unfun? Am I looking for unfun? I mean, you want to do something different. Relegation would be awesome. You know, like it'd be really cool. Yeah, it'd be really cool. Um, one and two. I mean, I think they're marginal. Uh, moving Stanford and Cal into the South. That's fine. I don't know if it fixes everything, but it certainly would allow um, some of the traditional stuff to return. Um, but really, you need to just add six teams and go back to the old Pack Eight. That's that's really what needs to happen here. Um, and then the Pac-12 channel, the Pac-12, uh, basically women's channel, if you could get any money for it, it sounds great, but I don't know that you could, um, but maybe. Yeah. Like I, I mean, if you make, I think if you did the pac 12 women's channel, it would have to be, you have the Pac-12 network and then you have the Pac-12 W or whatever. Like you don't need six regional ones and an, and a women's one and all that. I mean, I, I went to tune into the Colorado press conference and I got an email and they said it was going to be on. Pac-12, the Pac-12 network, it was going to be on, you know, Pac-12.com and Pac-12 Mountain. And I have Sling, so I only get the the regional one. So I put on Pac-12 Mountain and it was showing like a replay of, I think, Utah and Arizona State women's basketball. And it was like a couple minutes after 10 a.m. when the the conference was supposed to go. I'm like, this isn't going to happen, is it? But it eventually did. Um, They they, they waited until it got started and they broke in, um, you know, for that replay. But I, yeah, I don't think you need eight networks. I don't, I don't think seven's the right number. I, I don't think eight, no matter what it would be, would be right either. I think you just keep adding networks until you get this right. Oh. I think I, I think twelve networks, fifteen, I, maybe just have a network for every single sport at every single school. Yeah. What if you had a channel that was de- <laughs> like dedicated entirely to, um, like UCLA and not even like. Like even go beyond just the scholarship, you know, 
Division One sports. Like, what about if you had a, a channel entirely devoted to UCLA IM basketball? Wouldn't that just be great? I, <laughs> That's so much, so much programming. Uh, you need programming, and that would provide it. I think so. Yeah. I think so. So I'm. I I think they should just continue to add networks until um you know until they start turning a profit. At some point, they've got to, right? That's the, uh, that's, there's got to be some economics to that, right? Some law of average thing going on. Yeah, like it, yeah. eventually it'll work. Isn't that what the supply and demand law is? You know, if, if there's no demand for your product, just keep increasing the supply. And eventually there will be. You create the demand. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I'm sure that some economic professor it's somewhere sort of said a, that. It's true. sort of an underpants gnome problem, <laughs> you know? Step one, steal underpants. Step two... Step three, profit. Yeah. <laughs> That's where we are. I like it. Uh, we got Christopher in uh, Arizona. College versus the NFL. Ryan and Dave. So he has four questions. So we'll, I, we'll just do each one one at a time. I'd like to know what drove your passions for foot, college football versus the NFL. Okay. Do you uh, want to I, do that one first? Sure. I mean, I I love the NFL also. I grew up in uh, Western Pennsylvania. So when I was in, you know kid in the 70s, the Steelers won four Super Bowls. So I love the NFL. Uh, you know, My job being college football, I didn't really love – I like college football, but I didn't love it till I got to college. And, you know, USC had a tradition, and it was kind of cool to be, you know, part of that and everything. So that was neat. And then having it as my job. But college football is still my favorite sport. But unlike Dave, I do like watching the NFL. I'll play fantasy football. Uh, I've dropped off like college basketball. I used to watch a lot of that. I don't really anymore. But college football and the NFL are my two probably favorites. But, you know, college football is like my livelihood. But I still like it better than the NFL. Yeah. Well, um, the reason I never – a big part of the reason I never, like, was super into the NFL is for most of the time I was growing up, L.A. didn't have a team. Um, and so – if they'd had a team, maybe it would have been, you know, a little bit more for me, but they were gone for most of my childhood. Um, so that was like their kind of gap there. So I was actually a big baseball fan until pretty much the end of high school. And this is, if you want a glimpse into my weird little brain, um, I was a big Angels fan up until, or just soon thereafter, they won the World Series. And basically, as soon as they won the World Series, I was like, all right. Well, guess I'm done with that. Um, <laughs> and that was more or less when I started college. Um, and so I was like a casual UCLA sports fan because um, my brother had gone there and my dad had gone there. So I was a casual UCLA sports fan up until I went. And then I was just like, OK, well, I'm going to start going to all the games and doing this thing. Um, and so I actually took up UCLA football and that kind of filled the gap um where baseball had previously been like I grew to be you know really really interested and obsessed with it and I wonder how much of it was because UCLA football was so obviously terrible from the jump for me like 2003 you liked it, you liked it better was first bad. year well it's I mean it's still bad like I think I get more invested in it as it gets more terrible <laughs> like I think there's something about just like not it's not even like rooting for an underdog it's just like experiencing this level of like, you know, just, Oh God, this is terrible. I, I don't know. It's a nice little outlet. It really is. You, you, but, you gravitate towards the futility, I guess. That's what. Right. And that speaks more to like UCLA um, college football. Generally, I just find a more interesting and um, variable sport than the NFL. Cause I did, I mean, I did used to watch a lot of NFL before I had kids and then I just kind of picked one. Um, and 
the NFL, it's just there's a there was a real sameness to it when I was actually kind of drawing the lines of what I'm going to spend time watching, what I'm not. Um, whereas college, there is real variance to it, um, and not at the highest levels. Like Alabama's not going to win, lose too many games, um, but at the mid levels, you know, weird things can happen. A lot of it really is matchup based. Um, so I just find it a more interesting sport. There's more going on. There's, you know, some schools that have no business competing with other schools who somehow end up on the same field. And then suddenly it's magic happening like that Boise State, Oklahoma game and whatever it was, 2006. Um, like that kind of stuff where it's just like, oh, wow, this is this is something that's truly kind of magical. Whereas, you know, you're watching the NFL. It's all these teams have, you know, players who are stars on their college teams. Like every single one of them is a star from their college team. Um, and they're all, you know, getting paid a bunch of money. And I, I don't know. I just don't feel the that same, I don't know, level of, of competitive imbalance and, and, you know, how there can really be a David Goliath thing that there is in college from time to time. Yeah. I, I grew up baseball, loving baseball, too. I remember listening to Pirates games on, like, a, the radio. Uh, I always wanted to be, like, a Pirates bat boy. I played baseball growing up. And I don't know. Like, they've been so terrible since like the nineties, I just haven't really paid much attention to baseball. I like going to games. I mean, I'll cheer for the Dodgers, the angels, the local teams. I'll go, you know, go to a couple games a year, but I'm not like, I don't follow like the standings and know who's what or whatever, you know, but, um, I used to know, like, I used to know like everybody in baseball. Like I used to know like everyone's lineups, the whole thing. Like I watched, there was probably a year in high school where I watched like 150 of the 162 angels games. Holy crap. That's yeah. insane. Which, like, think about how cool I was in high school. Yeah, right? you, was, you had to be way cool. Dude, so cool. <laughs> you couldn't believe how cool I was. Nice. All right, well, his number two is, uh, I think he means why report on it as a career. I think he left a couple words out, but why why would you report on it as a career? I mean, well, right now it's sort of a part-timey thing for me, but um, the main reason I got into it is because I – was I did journalism in high school um, and then uh, I actually applied to be an opinion columnist, a viewpoint columnist um, for the Daily Bruin as a freshman and I didn't get it. And so then my next quarter I applied as a sports reporter and I got that. And then I flailed about for like three years um, and then finally decided, oh, I'm actually going to try to do this well. And I ended up doing uh, football and basketball my senior and super senior years and I really enjoyed because um, previous to that I'd only ever you know been in the stands for games but I actually really enjoyed having more of a literally elevated perspective on the games because the press boxes for UCLA were all super high up um, and kind of being able to just analyze the game um, rather than like sitting around just being insanely drunk during the games Um so, yeah, I kind of just fell into it, but then I really, really grew to love it, um, you know, my last two years at school and then kind of just continued doing it um, soon thereafter. Yeah, for me, it was, you know, I was an engineer and this was like a hobby that I enjoyed, but I, I you know, I loved college football. I loved, you know, kind of creating content around it before I even really knew what I was doing. And then it became kind of a challenge because it was a whole different industry. And I didn't really, you know, I had to learn it from scratch and, uh, you know, I, you know, etched out a little, you know, place for uscfootball.com and it became a popular site, but I, I didn't want to do it. Like I didn't want it to be a fan site. I wanted it to be a professionally run site. So 
it was kind of a challenge to learn everything I needed to learn and, and do that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, I still like being an engineer, but it's, it's a lot more fun for me covering college football and the high school games and all that kind of stuff. So I, I just like doing it. Yeah, for sure. Three, would you let your sons play football knowing the severity of traumatic brain injuries? Neither of us have sons, but we could answer anyway, I guess. Um, my hypothetical sons under no circumstances would I let them play football. Um, it's not even just the risk of uh, traumatic brain injury. I don't love the idea of contact sports generally. Um, find the whole thing kind of silly. Um, I have like, I can't think too hard about covering college football either or like sitting around and watching it on Saturdays. There's a lot of, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to make anybody out there think too hard about it because I'm making the same calculation you most uh, most undoubtedly are. But there are some real uncomfortable aspects of watching the game and watching the sport, um, knowing what's happening to all these players, um, knowing the demo of a lot of these players and what it says about me to just be kind of watching this. There's a real gladi- gladiatorial feel to it. Um, so... Yeah, I mean it's it's an uncomfortable thing. I probably wouldn't let any you know of my kids play it, um, and I'd have I mean I'd have reservations about playing rugby and a variety of other sports too. Um, I think there's a lot to be learned about playing a team sport like basketball. Um, so I, I don't think it's something where I'm opposed to team sports, um, but I am opposed to people having uh, critical injuries um, that could be avoided by just finding something else to play. Uh, again, I don't have uh, a son, don't have children, but I, I would lean more towards letting them play if that was something they really wanted to do. I am a proponent for letting them play multiple sports, not specializing. And I think now you do a lot of the flag football stuff when you're younger and then, you know, you don't put pads but on. Flag and stuff. football sucks. Okay. Well, it's like a- flag, flag football sucks. It sucks so bad. But I, I've seen a it's lot a of benefits from playing football. Okay, yeah, but I've seen but, a lot of benefits guess, of playing football, and I think it'd be one of those things where you just have to be to monitor it closely, and even if you're the star player, you don't get to go back in if there's some kind of injury, uh, and the team needs you. It's like no, you have to be on that. You know, yeah, you have to be you know careful about it. So I I still think I would, um, but I, I get people that wouldn't want to. Yeah, and then last one. What are your most proudest or? Yeah, what are your most proudest moments uh, as a sports reporter? He says, P.S. Winning Wheel of Fortune is a no-brainer. Pick a new one. I didn't win Wheel of Fortune. Uh, I won The Price is Right, but same thing, I guess. I got um, I got Seth Davis to block the UCLA Bruin Report Twitter account at one point from trolling so him. So you're pretty proud that of that. Pretty, that was a pretty proud moment for me. Um, yeah, most of my proud moments are trolling people, so I don't know what that <laughs> says about me. Um, showing up in that, the, the, probably the picture of the Mora era that gets photographed the most when they're writing a positive story about Mora is him leading the eight clap of the, uh, USC student or the UCLA student section at USC in 2013. And over his left shoulder, you'll see me with like this big, stupid grin on my face. Like literally like I'm growing out of his left shoulder, um, that was another proud moment for me. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Like, I, there's not like some story that I thought was amazing or whatever. I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's there's a bunch of that kind of stuff. Uh, it's cool when someone, when you get like retweeted um, 
and by you know a big name person that has like millions of followers. Like I remember Aaron Andrews when she was covering college football retweeted me a couple times, and uh, then you're just your mentions and everything goes absolutely bananas. Like that stuff's kind of cool. You're like, ooh, that's neat. Um, you know, we hit milestones like you know our 20 year anniversary. Uh, you know, I was proud of that. What we were able to do, you know, switching from rivals to scout to now 24 seven and being able to rebuild the business again. I, I think that was a very difficult thing to do, but it was, uh, you know, very proud when we were able to make it bigger than it was when you were there, you know, I was at rivals for 13 years. So to be able to build it back up and become the dominant force in that space was, was cool. And that's a lot of times just like getting people together. Like we put something together for USC's road game against Texas and it wasn't like all that well thought out. We were just like, hey, USC fans didn't really have a place to go. We we picked a bar. We, you know, it was a USC owned bar, like the key bar in uh, in Austin. And we, you know, sent out our emails or whatever. And we packed that place. Like they did, they were not ready. We thought that like 50 people would show up. We had, we filled it with 200 people and we had like 50 people waiting outside. And it was insane. And like stuff like that is like, wow, we really reached that, that, shows like you reach a lot of people and that's the kind of stuff I really like, you know, when people, I mean, I was at the gym this morning and someone just stopped me and said, Hey, I love your podcast. And it's like five 45 in the morning. Some dude like just sees me and says something like, I love that kind of stuff. Like when you have an impact on other people and you become part of their lives or their routine, cause they listen to your show or whatever. Uh, I, that's all the stuff I like. Yeah, for sure. Um, did you take any French in high school? I did. I took like, I think I, I, I should have took like all French, but I think I split French and Spanish. So I didn't please, know a lot. Please, please just take a stab at this subject line. Cause me reading French is not a good idea. Le beto it's, it's our man. Hifaday. Yeah. Le beto okay. is dans la rue. Maybe. Okay. That... I threw it into Google translate. It's beauty in the street. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Hifaday. I really appreciate you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, portmanteau is spelled with an E and the last syllable reminds with toe, not two. Okay. The E we were talking about last week was, um, the person who'd submitted had the E between the T and the M P O R T E M. Yeah. It's just, you know, we knew, we knew there was an E at the end, but it's like um, toe instead of two. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> um, I thought Jake's email last week mentioning the word was very gracious and complimentary and suggesting that this was the only moment in the episode at which I rolled my eyes. Thank you, Day. <laughs> Several wi- listeners wrote in wishing for insights beyond the simple class ranking to know if schools had filled needs and addressed imbalances for the future. You boys punted every time as reliably <laughs> as reliably as David Shaw inside the 40, so I did it myself. I compiled every young Pac-12 scholarship player and their composite talent rating defined as everyone, including the uh, 2020 class JUCOs transfers transfers and returning missionaries who has at least three to play two remaining, and so will form the core of the 2021 and 2022 starting lineups. For the most part, it goes as David figured last week. The top schools, Oregon, Washington, Stanford, USC, mostly have well-balanced young position groups with consistent above-average talent. The middle tier, ASU, Cal, Utah, and Oregon State, does pretty well in numerical balance but not much standout talent, and the bottom tier is a mess in both. Here are the anomalies. I wonder if you could rank them as to how concerning they are. Okay. One, most schools have about 60 young players. However, Utah and Colorado are barely above barely above 50, and Arizona is at 44 due to a wave of transfers and dismissals. 
Okay. Hmm. So basically what that one means is Utah and Colorado and Arizona really need to recruit well over the next couple of cycles because they've got a lot of dudes to replace. Colorado had, a, I think, transfers and stuff as far as in, and they, I think they picked up people. Mel Tucker was doing a good job of that. I'm curious why Utah would not be have around 60 young players. Yeah, I don't know. Two, Cal's young talent is at or just slightly below the league average at every other position, but quarterback and wide receiver stand out as significantly below average talents. Because they don't that's a concern. They don't offense. That's why. Well, they don't need another quarterback because they have Chase Garbage. True. The main thing that they have to work on is figuring out cloning here in the next couple of years <laughs> and getting another Garbers. <laughs> or just getting Ethan Garbers. He he might be the next Garbers. Yeah. But you need another Garbers. Yeah. That's the most important thing. Uh, three, Utah only has two young scholarship quarterbacks, and they're both rated poorly. The single worst group compared to the league average of any position at any school. They okay. they did have a veteran quarterback. Was it Shelley? Like, switch a defensive end and transfer yeah. out. But that I think that's going to be a common thing because guys are going to transfer, and then sometimes dude will transfer, and then if he would have stayed, there would have been a way better situation than wherever he ends up. But that's that just that's going to be the way it is. I don't get super worried about this. They've got a quarterback for this year because um, they've got the grad transfer coming in from South Carolina. Um, but it does make it imperative that they get somebody good right yeah. coming uh, coming up in this site. And they did sign, uh, I forget his name, but they signed a four-star quarterback that transferred right away. So, Right. What, what was his name? Uh, I can't remember. Tuttle or something. Can't remember. Tuttle, yeah. Uh, four, Washington has the same problem UCLA does, but somehow even worse. Way more linebackers than average and way fewer defensive linemen. Hmm. Okay. Five, ASU has a beef problem. They have very few young defensive linemen and linebackers, and their offensive line and tight end talent is much lower than average. Okay. Six, Stanford's young defensive players are baffling. They took a ton of mediocre DBs and have the fewest young defensive linemen in the league. Seven, why does UCLA have a ton of poorly rated young running backs? Oh, so these are just questions. Um... Why does UCLA have a ton of poorly rated young running backs is um, they've evaluated poorly. Um, they're still, I, I want to say they're still trying to get more next cycle, maybe. Um, they've got a lot of guys who they took kind of flyers on for speed or for this element or that element who apparently aren't any good. Um, I mean, we haven't really seen a lot of them on the field, so we can only assume they're not very good. So... Um, yeah, just another one of a myriad things that's just wrong with what's going on with Chip Kelly at UCLA. Um, and then eight, why does USC only have two young running backs? Yeah, they struck out. They tried to get a couple of guys in this class, um, and they couldn't. So that, yeah, they, they needed to bring in, uh, at least one running back in this class and they weren't able to do that. A guy at the last minute from Ohio chose Kentucky over USC. So that's sort of where they are hit today. Yeah. So, all right. So if I'm ranking the critical issues based on Hithloday's analysis alone, because I'm not double checking any of this. Um, for me, the the one, the, the standout thing is whenever you hear that a Pac-12 school doesn't get, doesn't have defensive linemen. Um, historically, the West Coast is not kind to teams that need to recruit a bunch of defensive linemen. So Washington being down on defensive linemen, ASU being down on defensive linemen, Stanford being down on defensive linemen, I would tend to rank those pretty high um, as issues. Um, I don't know enough about the the roster balance he talks about in point number one, the 60 young players metric and, you know, Utah and Colorado and Arizona. 
maybe they're getting maybe they have a really good idea that they're getting a big class coming this cycle i don't know um but whenever you're looking a little bit down in terms of defensive linemen that's that's something that stands out to me as a worry yeah no and like the cow stuff yeah you probably get some running some wide receivers for chase garbers but they're okay for now same thing with utah like you mentioned having a transfer come in um you know the beef problem with asu you could put that up there but and you know and i I don't think the young running back problem for either USC or UCLA are all that huge. It's, you know, it's something. I would agree with you. I think the defensive lineman stuff is the the most concerning. Yeah. Thanks, Hithliday. Uh, we got one last one. This is uh, Brad in Portland. Uh, gas pumpers. He said, guys, about a month ago on the POC, the two of you were having a normal, random, non-sports related conversation. That is very normal for us. Uh, this time you were talking about taxes and pumping gas in the state of Oregon. The next week, someone wrote in to give you the skinny on Oregon taxes, but the frustration behind the gas topic was never clarified. While it could be nice to stay in your car, especially this time of year, while someone else pumps your gas, it only really works if you go to a place like Costco, where they have three attendants covering six pumps. Although you have to wait about 10 minutes to get to the gas pumps, once you're there, they are efficient on moving you through. What is uh, not nice is when you go to a station that is short-staffed for whatever reason and someone wants to pay with cash so that one attendant covering three to four pumps has to go in the gas station to complete the transaction. The part that is painful is when you realize that your time is being wasted because it is against the law to move a five-pound object a foot or two uh, or uh, a foot or two into or out of your car. Uh, anyways, uh, all this speaking of pumping gas made me think of a question. Who is a bigger homer and does more, quote, gas pumping for the conference they cover? Yogi Roth or Paul Feinbaum? And do you think they both believe what they are selling? Brad in Portland. Mm. Mm. So I would say. A lot, a lot to chew on here. So, I mean, there's a different, like, Paul Feinbaum's huge. I mean, we love Yogi. Uh, I would say Paul I mean, he just has a bigger voice, but I think I don't want to be mean or whatever, but I think there's more what he's not stretching the truth as much as Yogi might be. I think. Yo well, it, it, here's the important thing to understand about Yogi is he's a warrior poet. You know, he's out there. He is, I think, intentionally doing this because he's doing it in response to people like Feinbaum, who. So Feinbaum is operating mostly with reality, right? The SEC is really good. He's like 90% there, but that extra 10% makes it even more obnoxious. Yes, okay. You don't need to go that far. So Yogi responded to that being like, no, the Pac-12 is great. All these teams should be in the playoff. It's awesome. Um, I love that. That's great. <laughs> you know, that's fighting a feudal battle. That is taking something that is like 30% true and going 100 with it. And I love it. I love every bit of it. Fine bomb. No, that's obnoxious. You don't need to sit in here and tell me your already great league is actually, oh, it's the only league. It's the only league that will ever matter. No, I don't want to hear that. Yeah. I want to hear that the Pac-12, like clearly like a dog crap league that's fading rapidly. Uh, I want to hear that, that that should be in the playoff every year. That's what I want to hear from Yogi Roth. So I'm not going to get into who's pumping more gas. It's obviously Yogi. But I think he's doing it in a more noble cause. I like that. Uh, it's funny. Uh, he, when he was covering a little bit more USC stuff, uh, this was, I guess this was Sark era USC. 
And Justin Wilcox was just not doing a good job. And I don't know if it was, you know, the defense wasn't good. And Justin Wilcox was running the defense. And so we were critical of him. And Yogi was like telling just me how awesome he is and this great young coach and stuff. I'm like, dude, are you seeing what's going on? They have all this talent and the defense sucks. Like, I don't know what, what why is this happening? But, it, you know, Justin Wilcox. And to be fair, Wilcox has pretty much been good everywhere else except USC. And so maybe there were other circumstances that were going on uh, besides that. But I remember getting into this argument. But you know, Yogi was right. I mean, he is a good young coach. He's doing a really good job at Cal. Had some good opportunities. But at the time, he just wasn't doing a good job for whatever reason. So I, I think he's looking for – he's a glass half full kind of guy. And, and you got to love that. And But he's he's got to tell you, tell you the glass half full when – uh, the the bottom has been cut off the glass and there's nothing in it. He's still trying to tell you it's half full because you know he's covering the Pac-12. It's it's, it's a t- it's a much tougher job, like you said, what he has to do versus what Feinbaum has to do. Here's what I would also say: if one of these guys literally had to man a short-staffed gas station where they had to pump several cars gas, I would trust. Even if you aged him out, like and had him at the same age, like they're both. I think Yogi's like, what, like 38, 40, something like that. Even if it was 40-year-old Paul Feinbaum, I'm taking Yogi Roth. Oh, yeah. He he would figure out an efficient and energetic way to pump everyone's gas real quick. And you'd have a smile on your face when you were done. Oh, yeah, and no, you'd feel good about it. He'd, he'd, have a, he'd have a kind word for everybody. He'd pump all their gas super efficiently, and he wouldn't accept any tips. No. You got to love it. All right. Well, so if Yogi wants to try something else, he could pump gas in Oregon. I think so, and it sounds like they're short-staffed, so why not get up there? It'll give you something to do in the off-season. Nice. All right, well, that's our show for today. Anything else, Dave, you got? I got nothing. Yeah. Tapped out. Great stuff. Thanks to for Adam for jumping on and uh, breaking down that. We got to get into our previews, even though by the time next week starts, there'll be Stanford and ASU will be started their, uh, their spring football. So I guess we'll try to get uh, you know Chris Cartman and uh, RJ – kind of get their thoughts heading into spring football and then we'll kind of space it out from there but that that should be a fun one we'll we got we got we have a uh, a task now Dave we know what we're doing we're we're not trying to like fill time we actually have stuff to cover no that only starts to really hit in May and June yeah then we're just kind of that'll be that'll be when we're getting getting a little weird yeah we're figuring it all out on the fly all right well good stuff uh thanks to Adam again for joining us That's my partner, David Woods. I'm Ryan Abraham. Thank you for tuning in to the podcast of champions. And we will talk to you next time. Bye.